0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 211. My name is Arioben Laiman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we take delight in knowing that as we meet together through this medium of the internet, uh, connecting to one another across the miles, that your spirit is here with us no matter where we're at around the world. It's because of your presence that we can be assured that Um, We're going to have a challenging time every time we meet together. Um, Help us to tune our minds into what you are speaking to us. Help help us to open our ears and be attentive um, to the words that are being taught. Um, I pray, Lord, that you'll uh, bring to my recollection the things that I've studied this week and give me clarity of thought and and speech and uh, present a message that's coherent and um, um, encouraging and at the same time challenging um give us the um how should i say give us the uh, the drive to continue to press in uh to be people of god to be holy people um turning from sin and turning to the spirit saying yes to yeshua and saying no to the flesh so um just uh just continue to raise us up lord and, and take us higher um the topics that we're studying i believe are relevant for our day and age especially in the in light of um the fact that um we're living in the last days and that um, when it comes to eschatology, there are events that appear to be almost right around the corner. Um, I could be wrong. They could be 50 years in the future. they could be 100 years. Lord, you know. But nevertheless, what, you, what I perceive from your word is that there are, um, there's an, a sense of urgency. Um, even 2,000 years ago, the, the biblical writers of the New Testament believed they were they were almost right around the corner from Yeshua returning again, the sense of urgency of being about the Master's business, about being about our Father's uh, business. Um, Lord, we pray that we would have that same sense of urgency. So thank you for the studies, and thank you for the students. Um, be with us tonight. Bless us, as you always do. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Be ashamed, Yeshua, amen All right, let's jump into our um, studies. Um, As you can see on my screen right now, this is a a biblical... Let's see, what's the the official title? Um, Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End-Time Events. My name is Urban Lyman V, and um, we missed last week, so let's pick up where we left off. We're working our way through um, uh, two chapters in the book of Daniel. Um, We looked at Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel interprets the king's dream. And then we also looked at Daniel chapter seven. We took a bite out of it last uh, two weeks ago where we started looking at Daniel's dream. So if you look at my um, uh, screen right now, you can see this is the basic kind of syllabus slash schedule that I'm working from. Um, you can see that topics one, two, and three are already struck through. We've already hit those. So we're currently in topic four, book of Daniel prophecies near and far. And then I we might finish this tonight. I'm pretty sure I could probably finish it tonight. Um, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 um I'm not going to hit chapters eight uh be- because of much of it is its historical content with some uh information about uh, uh, future uh, uh events but there's I may make reference to it every now and then and I'm not I'm certainly not ignoring it um when we get to the book of Revelation studies in topic 13, 14, and start turning directly into the book of Revelation, and we work our way through some of the main topics in the book of Revelation, we're going to have to start talking about this figure known as Antichrist. And when we do so, um, we'll go back again and pick up some of the um, relevant verses here and there out of chapter 8 and Daniel um, 9, 10, 11, 12. So we'll pick those up then. But for now, what I'm doing is I'm simply laying a foundation in the book of Daniel chapters two, seven, and then nine, which we'll do, like I said, either we'll hit this week or we'll pick up next week with Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel, because that's foundational to understanding um, even uh, where the the end time events are, are being driven. So I'm not ignoring those people out there who are reminding me that um, there's events in, in other parts of Daniel's book, um, I'm just not using those as foundational parts. So, um, having said that, so we're still in topic four, Book of Daniel, Prophecies Near and Far. And just a reminder, there are two main views of end-time events that I'm contrasting and comparing with one another. The Preterist view that you can see on your screen now is an approach that holds that the prophecies of Revelation and Daniel and other prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus and his Roman armies overran Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple. That is a view that I think has some merit in certain cases. There are details in the Bible that seem to lend support for uh, AD 70 and the following Jewish wars that followed after the destruction of the temple in that time. That, um, that's where the Bible was pointing uh, when it comes to maybe a view towards um, certain um, destruction surrounding Jerusalem, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. Certainly, it was within the scope of biblical prophecy that Daniel um, caught, because he is given prophecy about uh, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and the temple of Israel, right? Those are primary within his scope of his prophecy. So, it makes sense when we're reading in the book of Revelation that we're going to get to that um, people are going to turn to Revelation and then are going to look at uh, what happened 2,000 years ago and see if there are some overlapping details that match. However, we've been also um, kind of comparing and contrasting the um, preterist view with the futurist view. And this is a view that, as I mentioned, is uh, an approach to interpreting eschatological books of the Bible. And it holds most of the events described in the book, like, for instance, Revelation or Daniel, that will take place in the end times just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's the view that I'm primarily working from, and I mention that uh, again, just so you guys understand. When we're reading through the book of Daniel, like we're going to be going through tonight, um, there are events that describe coming kingdoms, coming kings. Uh, Daniel uses the term beasts, which is uh, reminiscent of what John in the book of Revelation also uses. And so when we're reading these and we're talking about um, coming empires and things like that, there's... There's an important uh, aspect that we've touched on. I'm not going to go too much into it tonight, but this idea of the overlap of, of the kingdoms that are coming and yet the kingdom that is already here. It's kind of the now and not yet or near far aspects. And that's why we're borrowing this title of Daniel's Prophecies Near and Far in my um, topical section. So, you remember I talked about how that um, this book by Robert Van Kampen, a Christian author who's recently passed away, called The Sign... One of the books that drives a lot of the um my understanding of end time events i don't hold to everything that that uh, mr van campen teaches um he's got some really um surprising uh perspectives on some topics ones that i haven't yet um wrapped my mind around or that i don't fully espouse to um subscribe to but um for the most part he teaches a a perspective that looks largely like historical dispensationalist perspective and even though I don't subscribe to the um, uh, kind of the, um, the whole ideology of dispensationalism, I recognize its merits and value, especially in terms of God continuing to deal with Israel, as opposed to those who practice a supersessionist or replacement theology that kind of takes Israel out of the picture and then still tries to interpret end time prophecy. The thing I really appreciate about this book is that it puts Israel back front and center. It's like uh, Israel is God's timepiece. And when God wants to um, interact with nations of the world, he interacts with them as they interact with Israel, because that's how uh, the Bible uh, re- maintains its place as a Israel-centric uh, piece of literature. And so I think uh, Mr. Van Camp is right on the money in, the, in those cases. When it comes to the um, book of Daniel and talking about what we're going to be talking about, the um, the rising of nations as they as they play into moving into the end times, uh, Mr. Van Campen does a great job, um, so I can recommend the book. Um, like I said, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of the better uh, eschatological books out there. Um, very thorough, very thorough. All right, so uh, with that having been said, let me kind of uh, prep you into what we're going to be talking about tonight and, and show you why the book of Daniel is helpful to plug into our understanding of the book of Revelation. What I've got pulled up now is a, a blue-letter Bible tool. That, uh, where I did a word search for the word beast as it shows up in the book of Revelation, and you can see this word beast shows up 37 times in 29 verses in the book of Revelation, which is quite a lot. But you compare it to, for instance, let me just uh, if you look at the results of um, the word beast by the books of the Bible, um, you know, Genesis has a lot of references, Exodus as well. And Ezekiel has a lot, but no other book other than Revelation, if you can see on the list there, has as many references to this term beast. Now, obviously, sometimes the word beast is referring to animals, you know, four-footed beasts. But a germane to our study is how the word beast is related in the book of Revelation to this concept of um, kings and kingdoms. So, look at some of these verses. In Revelation, starting in Revelation 11:7, just out of the blue, John says, "When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them." So um, it's almost like he just knows that his readership would understand what the phrase "beast" there is referring to within apocalyptic genre, within kind of um, 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 end time. Verbiage right he's not talking about a literal animal that comes up out of the abyss and makes war with these saints in the book uh, in the in chapter eleven he's obviously using symbolic language right he's using pictures he he saw this in a vision in a dream in a in 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 a heavenly um panorama of events right we can kind of mix all those words in there and so um we're talking about some type of representation of a of a that that a creature is the stand in for whatever John was actually witnessing, but the definitions and the explanations of what those symbols represent um, are usually given within each book. Moving along in Revelation 13, um, he talks about the dragon standing on the sand of the seashore and he saw it, sees this beast coming up out of the sea. And here's where we start to get our first look at this, this system, this one world order that's going to um, the new world order or one world order or one world system um this this coalition of nations this um gov- governmental uh body that's made up of many many nations and and peoples or leaders that that work together uh in revelation 13 john says he saw sees this beast coming out of out of the sea and it has 10 horns and seven heads and on his horns were 10 diadems and this is reminiscent of the beast that shows up in um um the beast that's, that we're going read to about, read about in the book of Daniel here in a moment, but prepping us for the book of Revelation is the book of Daniel. So that's why we're reading the book of Daniel. So uh, where we're studying some of these chapters, I don't want you to get lost and think that it's a study on the book of Daniel. It really isn't. It's a study on the book of Revelation. And so John tells us, "Hey, look at this beast." But the reader should already be familiar with the fact that he's read something about a beast in the book of Re- in the book of John. I'm sorry, in the book of uh, Daniel. Uh, moving along 13, the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. Of, like those of a bear's mouth, like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him the power and his throne and great authority. That's Revelation 13 two. Those of you who remember what we talked about in chapter 7 of Daniel, do you remember those animals? Leopard, bear, lion, right? Do those sound familiar? If you don't remember, we'll hit them tonight. We'll do some a bit of refresher. Revelation 13 talks about... Um, uh, People on the earth following after this beast—is it a person? Is it a is it a, um, a governmental authority? Well, that's the trick. In the Bible, the word "beast" here, with an apocalyptic genre, can refer sometimes either to a king, like an individual, a ruler, like an Antio- uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, or um, the Antichrist, but it can also refer to um, uh, other human rulers that aren't as as uh, say uh, evil. In their perspective like like um King Nebuchadnezzar is, is one of the beasts um but also it can refer to the kingdom itself um the, the 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 rulership that this king has um authority over uh revelation 13 4 they worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast so as we keep moving and just glancing at uh what we're gonna eventually get to revelation 13 11 then I saw another beast right so we have two beasts on the scene now We have a beast known as the Antichrist in Revelation 13, and then there's a second beast that is commonly referred to as the false prophet uh, that exercises all the authority of the first beast, which would be the Antichrist by context. Um, But in both cases, it appears that we're talking about a human, uh, someone who has some governing authority over a certain part of the world, maybe a a geographic area. Maybe it could be some type of political um, authority, uh, certainly represents some type of military authority um, that he's going to be um, exercising. Um, Again, in 13, uh, talking about these, these two beasts and the worship of the beast. Um, you can see in thirteen, Revelation thirteen has a lot of beast language. As I'm kind of scrolling down, in fact, most of the beast language in Revelation is in chapter thirteen. So we'll get a lot of mileage out of beasts when we get there. Um, chapter fourteen warns anyone who worships the beast, or receives a mark on his hand or on his forehead. They're going to be tormented. Um, uh, two verses there to talk about the torment of those who worship the beast and his image. You've all heard of the mark of the beast, right? 666. What is that all about? Well, before you can even appreciate what the mark of the beast entails, it's first best to appreciate what the phrase beast entails before you kind of figure out what his mark might mean. Um, In chapter 15 of Revelation, we see that um there are those who are victorious over the beast. Um uh chapter 16 of Revelation talks about um uh judgments being poured on those who who have the mark of the beast. Uh 16 there as well. Um and then in chapter 17 we see this additional beast who's not quite the same as maybe the uh other beast, or it could be the same beast. Um, we have to wait till we get there to determine whether the context is telling us that we're talking about the beast, one of the beasts that uh, John already mentioned earlier in his letter. But the, the beast is, is called a scarlet beast, right? And there's this woman writing this scarlet beast. Um, reminds us of the scarlet dragon, right? The red dragon that we already talked about in, in uh, chapter 11. Um, and then um, uh, continuing in through chapter 17, John talks about the beast and the woman and um, the relationship there. Um this beast has uh some peculiarities about him he was and is and is not and is is uh, of the seven and is part of the eighth he was and is not and will come almost sounds like he's really imitating right yeshua i i am uh he who was who was and is and is to come right that same language which would seem to make sense if we're talking about a character known as antichrist um Notice in 17, Revelation 17, 12, the ten horns, which is our ten kings, have not yet received a kingdom, but they have received authority as kings with the beast. So again, we're talking about an individual or a kingdom and a king and his kingdom. And we're talking about authority being shared between this beast and the ten horns. This number ten and seven that we see in the book of Revelation surely is linked to the book of Daniel that we're going to be looking at here in a moment. right? We have to remember um, that these numbers have already been used before in other parts of the Bible. Um, they give their power and authority to the beast, these ten uh, kings. Um, they uh, uh, have some problems with the beast, some quarrels, some conflicts. Um, God puts in their hearts, hearts to to give their kingdom to this beast um the kingdoms of the earth assemble against the beast in in ch- uh, chapter uh 19 uh the beast and then we see the the downfall of this beast in in revelation 19 right he seized with the false prophet false prophet that other beast and um um god takes care of him in, the, in in the way that its prophesied uh and then finally um in chapter 20 um, talks about those who worship the beast and what their outcome will be in relationship to the kingdom of God and thousand year reign of of Yeshua on earth, um, and in um, uh, the final chapter in twenty um, of Revelation here, oops, final two chapters there or two uh, verses there um, uh, that mention the word beast um, that mention the prof, false prophet as well as the beast. It appears we're talking about people, not just kingdoms. So I said all of that to say that we're looking at the book of Daniel. And we're doing so with a view towards who and what are these beasts. So we already looked at the king's dream in Daniel chapter 2. We looked at that a few weeks back. Go back and listen to those episodes there, episode number um 209 and 210. Um the king's dream, there are four, there's this giant statue, and there are these metals, right? Gold and silver and bronze and and, and um well, iron. And we see that Daniel describes to the king these details of kingdoms that are going to come onto the earth. And so let me pull in this little picture that you've seen before. Um, You can Google search this, uh, Daniel's prophetic dream, or the king's dream, Daniel, or something to that effect, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue. You'll end up with something similar to what you're looking at now. This is the traditional understanding of this um, dream. And germane to our study is that the dream that the king has in Daniel chapter 2 has relevance to the dream that Daniel himself has in Daniel chapter 7. So, just real quickly, you can see a picture of it there. There's another representation of it here. Uh, We used this graphic a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Um, Just to let you know that this is the kind of representation that uh, we're working from. Um, But when we get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel himself has his own dream. And this is where we have the vision of the four animals, or the four beasts. And so, we read these chapters uh, in their entirety, or the relevant parts of them. I'm not going to read them again tonight. Instead, let's just remind ourselves that uh, in chapter 7, there are four beasts, and they're coming up from the sea. Interestingly, he describes in verse 3 as coming up from the sea, but when the interpretation is given by the angel later on down, he says they come up from the earth, which tells us, that there's a relationship between the word sea and the word earth in the prophetic vision. They both speak of, um, people groups or human, um, civilizations or something like that. Sometimes we say, use the word sea there because, uh, the, the, the the waters of the sea, the seas, the oceans, they touch every landmass, uh, in some way, right? The water meets land everywhere on the earth somewhere. um, I'm not saying that every nation has a shoreline, but the point I'm trying to make is that there's water everywhere on the earth. Um, And so we can say that there are people groups, wherever people travel uh, throughout the earth, they're going to encounter land, uh, water masses such as seas. And so it's no wonder that uh, the Bible uses the word sea to refer to a kind of a universal global scale. When it's talking about peoples or tongues or languages or nations, the word sea there gets brought into the, uh, the symbology. Likewise, the word land, obviously, all right, humans primarily live on the land, and where you know throughout the earth we've been scattered across the face of the earth. So they kind of go together, but we've got these four beasts, and so you should be plugging the connection in your mind together between uh, Daniel two and the statue of of Nebuchadnezzar and all the elements there. We already looked at how those four elements. Let me back up one picture there, uh, one image. We already looked at how that the head represented Babylon. The middle section, the arms and the chest, represent Medo-Persia. The middle, uh, the waist and the um, the uh, thighs represent right the belly and the thighs represent Greece. And then here's where we get a little bit of challenge. The legs and the toes start representing a, a a kingdom that historically is Rome and yet has not been fully actualized in history. So on the one hand on the near term on the immediacy of prophecy on this, on the horizon um rome was in view because successively this would have been the kingdom that came after greece right babylon medo persia greece and then rome that makes sense but on the far term when we start moving towards this idea of the the 10 toes in the in the statue we're talking about a revival of a kingdom that was recognized as rome but now Um, lives in the kind of same geographical area that we would call modern-day Western Europe. So, um, that's why we call it a revived Roman Empire in many biblical studies. Um, This statue is a direct one-to-one correlation with Daniel chapter 7's four beasts, and then this fifth kingdom, represented by the stone cut without hands, The stone is, and, and the um, in the in the statue, the stone cut without hands that hits the statue at the feet, is represented by the kingdom that Daniel sees in chapter seven. That is the ancient of days given to the one like the son of man, which of course is the Messiah. Even the rabbis recognize Rashi, I was looking up this week, he even recognizes that the one who approaches the the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, the one who's like the Son of Man, is the Messiah. Even Rashi, the great premier uh, Jewish sage of years gone by, he recognizes this is Messiah. Of course, all Christians recognize this is Messiah as well. So Daniel chapter 7 has these four beasts, and let me switch to a little uh, image here. And these four beasts are, again, appropriately recognized as the same of those four metals in Daniel chapter two, right? We've got Babylon, which was the gold. We've got Medo-Persia, which was the silver. We've got Greece, which was the bronze. And then we've got Rome, which was the iron. And um, these are the four animals that Daniel sees. And uh, germane to our study as we're going to start looking at Daniel chapter 7 and just kind of um, finalizing it. I'm pretty sure I can wrap this part up tonight. It won't take very long. I might even begin to um, uh, take a bite out of some of uh, Daniel chapter 9 tonight. We'll see. But um, When Daniel begins to look at these beasts, it's interesting that he he looks at these beasts and he describes them for us in the vision, but as he's working his way down through the vision starting in verse 7 when he gets to the fourth beast that beast captures most of daniel's attention in the vision and it captures most of the the uh, attention of the um interpreter who gives the dream to daniel and tells him what it means so look at this once again we read this a few weeks ago but we'll pick this part up again in daniel chapter 7 starting in verse 7 Daniel says after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed. It trampled down the remainder with its feet. I'm reading from the NASB, by the way. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Now stop for a moment. Where have we heard this ten horn language before? Well, we didn't hear anything about 10 horns in Daniel chapter 2, but we do recall that the statue had a f- had feet with 10 toes. So the symbology of the Daniel 2 um, statue with its 10 toes directly corresponds, I believe, and most uh, prophecy teachers are in agreement with me, directly corresponds with Daniel chapter 7's 10 horns. Likewise, we already saw that the book of Revelation talks about a beast with 10 heads or 10 horns, uh, 10 somethings, right? 10 crowns and things like that. So we're beginning to see that the symbolic nature of 10 here in uh, these prophecies of Daniel and Revelation are beginning to describe kings or kingdoms or rulers or authorities. Um, Not necessarily nations, I believe the nations are depicted by the four metals and the four beasts. Those are um, large capacity nations like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, um, Rome, or some type of revived Rome, or New World Rome, or uh, something to that effect, Uh, could be Islam or could be the Russian Confederacy when it's formed. Um, Depends on how you um, interpret that fourth beast and the fourth metal. But we're talking about large-scale kingdoms that uh, existed on the earth and covered a large um, geographical place on the map, right? I mean, you have to remember how large was ancient Babylon, Medo-Persia, which covered large areas of of Iran and modern-day Iraq today, right? Medo-Persia, uh, the empire, and it covered large parts of the Middle East. There, um, Greece uh, covered a, a large part of um, of you know Europe and. Um, Turkey and the Middle East and uh, even extended far into um, uh, what we might call Western Asia or um, uh, parts of Iraq, Iran and and, um, India and things like that. You know, Alexander the Great was just I mean, he was amazing in his conquests. And then when we're talking about Rome again, Rome with its West and its East Western Rome covering a a footprint that looks like modern day Europe today. And Eastern Rome covering a footprint that looks like modern day Turkey and Syria and um, Iraq and the Middle East, you know, Israel and things like that. But But it extended all the way down into Egypt and upper Africa, Libya and all those other countries right there on the top part of Africa as well. So why are we mentioning all of these details as they are showing up here in the book of Daniel? the reason we're doing that is because when we start to turn to the book of revelation we're going to find that there are um um there's a a a one world order a new world order a a one world government a um a revived we say revived rome because it must be um it must pick up where Daniel's Rome left off, where Daniel's fourth beast didn't find all of its fullest fulfillment. We find that the Book of Revelation is going to give us more details about events that, even though some of them seem to have been fulfilled in 70 A.D., right when Rome was in power, right in John's day, some of the details that we read about in, in Daniel's prophecy have yet to be fulfilled. And certainly, when we read through the Book of Revelation, if we're honest with the text, then we'll, we we would have to admit that there are details that are yet future so daniel 2 daniel 7 and we're going to see next week daniel 9 and as well they all push us towards the direction of revelation um lending a support for this idea of there's there are events that are going to take place um in the future now again when we looked at preterist we talked about how that preterist is this idea of prophecy of particular the book of revelation that most of what took place in the book of daniel and revelation has already uh, come and gone So, when we're reading the book of Revelation, we don't really have to expect a lot that's around the corner. Again, that is the preterist perspective. However, however, in all honesty, preterism falls into two camps. There's kind of a full-blown kind of hyper-preterism, where it takes everything in the book of Revelation and just dumps it into the first century. And then there's another view of preterism, kind of known as partial preterism, that um says you know the futurists have a leg to stand on there are things that can't possibly been fulfilled in the future or possibly been fulfilled 2000 years ago in 70 ad um some of this must be future if we're going to let prophecy be be literal in its aspect there are things that haven't been uh, spoken of yet they they just haven't come to pass and unless god's word is just going to fall flat right unless god was wrong or god was speaking in what we might call um prophetic hyperbole where he's just really grossly overstating what might really happen in the future, um, then we have to admit that some events are future. So Daniel chapter seven with his four beasts plugs right into Daniel or right into the book of revelation with the beast empires. But what's really nice in the book of revelation is that revelation zooms out and gives us this broad view of all the seven empires, the beast empires that Satan has kind of, um, uh, Hijacked, if I can use that word, there are um, world empires that were that have existed on on planet Earth that have all they all share similar characteristics, and so we're going to be eventually working our way towards that. But again, just remind yourself that this fourth beast in Daniel, which is the fourth metal in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, directly corresponds to this final beast empire that will be on scene. On the scene during the last seven years of um well man's dominance on planet earth so daniel says this fine this final beast is is different from all the beasts that were before it in daniel chapter 7 verse 7 while i was thinking about the horns right remember there's 10 horns um scroll down there scroll up there i'm sorry uh, four heads. this beast had large arms, he had devoured and crushed, trampled, and remained with feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. it had ten horns. And then in verse 8, while I was thinking about those ten horns, behold, another horn, so an eleventh horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So Daniel starts zeroing in not just on this fourth beast, but also on the ten horns of this beast. And what we're going to find as we plug this vision in Daniel chapter 7 into the book of Revelation later on. Is that this these ten horns, which represent um, ten kings or ten rulers? They don't necessarily have to be royal kings in that sense. They're not royalty per se, but the word kings or rulers is used. Could be they could be states of head, uh, heads of state. I'm sorry, states of it. They could be heads of states. They could be presidents of countries. They could be. Um, ambassadors of countries, they could be uh, governors of some land or something like that. The point is, they're in, they're in a leadership th- in position. We're going to find that they directly correspond to these 10 um, horns that are on the beast that's in the book of Revelation as well. But it represents this um, 10 nation coalition that's going to be formed in the Antichrist's final last days to overthrow God, his Messiah. And destroy the people of God and anything that resembles um a threat to him. And so that's where the connection is being made. Daniel doesn't know how far into the future this will be. And indeed, if we plug this fourth beast, aka the fourth metal in in um in uh, a statue, the, the, the bronze, the very bottom near the bottom of the legs, if we if we directly plug this into the book of Revelation, we would have to admit that from Daniel's perspective, he was looking at a, a type and shadow of, of Rome, but even Rome itself was a type and shadow of a future kingdom. So remember, just remind yourself, the Preterist perspective says that all of these things took place in the first century during Rome's rule. And I have to give them a little bit of credit and say, well, a lot of it did take place then. right? There was persecution, destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, and those were foretold by Daniel. right? Those are part of the prophecies that we're going to read about in Daniel chapter 9, either tonight or next week. At the same time, however, um, Rome doesn't exhaust all of the details that are given in these chapters of um, Daniel and in the book of Revelation. So, as we're looking at this um, uh, uh, dream of Daniel in chapter 7, what's really, really neat is that his dream is interrupted, as it were, by this scene in heaven, the Ancient of Days, a throne is set up, Um, the um, courts are open, the courts are convened, the books are open, and then the demise of this boastful horn is prophesied. Uh, Its body is destroyed and given to the burning fire, but in this vision he sees that the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So um, this is a bit enigmatic. We have these other beasts, four beasts, I'm sorry, the three beasts, and then the fourth one. You remember the three beasts, the, the uh the lion, the leopard, and the um uh the lion, the leopard, and the bear, they correspond to the four the, the first three medals in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and they also correspond to the um uh world empires that we've already discussed: Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece. And yet Daniel says that their dominion was not taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. This seems to um, uh, be interpreted by most Bible scholars, and I agree with most of them that there was a um, um was a sense that the world empires kind of uh, never ruled the world in the in the in the dominion that they had earlier, but yet the the uh, countries themselves didn't disappear. They didn't just um, disappear from the map. The people groups didn't get completely destroyed or or something like that. Um, they got, in many cases, whenever the succeeding country um, overthrew the previous one, so when Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon, when Greece overthrew Medo-Persia, and when Rome overthrew Greece, in many cases, the the defeated country simply gets assimilated in many ways into the culture and language of the success of the one who uh, won, right? The the winner just kind of uh, the dissolved a lot of the, uh, the 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 loser, but they didn't completely destroy them. And so there's we can still see that there are remnants of, of those countries around. And indeed, in the final days, there will be there should be some semblance of those of main three the first three beasts because john tells us in the book of revelation if i maybe just can remind you again to show you uh in the book of revelation as we looked at um let me find it here in revelation 13 2 john says and the beast which i saw was like a you ready for it leopard who's the leopard well daniel already tells us leopard is greece and his feet were like those of a bear who's the bear well daniel already told us I'm sorry, the the um, yeah the, the bear is um, Medo-Persia. And his mouth, uh, like the mouth of a lion, whose lion, Daniel already told us, the lion is Babylon. So we can see here that in the book of Revelation, by the time John gets this vision from Yeshua, that we have remnants of, the, of previous beasts that we've already read about in the book of Daniel. And so that's why Daniel 7 becomes very relevant. But in the middle of this vision... Daniel sees this kingdom that interrupts the beast's dominion, as it were, and kicks him out of the off the throne and kicks him into kicks him into the fire, right? Um, the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. And then the son of man approaches the ancient of days, and his kingdom is set up, and to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and populations, all languages might serve him. And notice the stark contrast: this son of man, which we of course recognize as Messiah. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away, which is, again, in stark contrast to the kingdoms that do pass away and that did pass away, such as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. They had their day, and they don't rule and reign on earth as they did once. I mean, they have kind of a diminished uh, sort of power uh, today. But eventually, one day, God will establish his messianic kingdom, his righteous kingdom ruled by King Messiah, and it will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Also, by way of interest is when the vision is interpreted, as we're beginning to look at in verse 15 of Daniel chapter 7, the interpretation of the dream says that the kingdom is given to the saints of the Holy One, right? So it almost sounds like it's contrasting or contradictory. Is the kingdom given to the Messiah, the, 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 the Son of Man, or is it given to the saints? Well, the answer is yes, it's given to both. As we serve this um, one like the Son of Man, we who are the saints will rule and reign with Messiah in that kingdom. Daniel's distressed, and uh, the one standing next to him gave him the interpretation. I, you got to like the humor of this guy who's giving him the interpretation. In just one and two verses, he kind of takes all of the vision and just smashes it into like a, a preview statement. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise out of the earth. End. Stop. Period. And if that was all that was given, I mean, if I was Daniel, I'd be really upset, right? I want a refund on my dream or that ticket, right? a refund on my ticket, because that's all you're going to tell me? They're great beasts, which are four number of four kings who will rise from the earth. That's it? No more detail other than that? Okay. And then he says in verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Okay, no, then Daniel turns his attention to this fourth beast. Daniel isn't even really focusing on one, two, and three beasts, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. He doesn't really focus on those. Just like the king statue, they don't get very much detail in terms of who they are and what they're going to be about now daniel chapter 8 in all fairness does go into more detail of the um uh, the power shift between the medes and the persians and greece right the shaggy goat and the ram and things like that if you go back and read daniel chapter 8 um we we have uh more details about antiochus Epiphanes. i'm sorry more details about uh alexander the great his conquest of the known world at the time uh, his death and the fact that his um, uh, kingdom got passed on to his four generals and they divided it up that way. And then Antiochus, or Antiochus, um, I'll go back and forth between my pronunciations there, Antiochus, Antiochus. Uh, Antiochus fourth or uh, Epiphanes, it was his nickname, he becomes this dominant leader of, of his day. And of course, if you've read the book of Maccabees and you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, Um, then you'll know of the atrocities that uh, Antiochus committed with um, against Israel and against the people of Israel, the land and the temple in particular, right? So Daniel focuses on, he zeroes in, he drills in his attention to this fourth beast as well. And that's where we're going to get the most mileage out of the book of Daniel as well. And the reason is because When we're talking about the book of Daniel as it's uh, germane to our study in the book of Revelation and other end-time prophecies, and uh, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the temple of Israel, and uh, the the world surrounding Israel, right? As we move into the last days, how does God deal with the world and, and Israel and things like that? Germane to our study is that the fourth beast is both a type and shadow of not only Rome, who is future to Daniel, so it's near from Daniel, it's now far from us, right? Because it's 2,000 years removed. But Rome is part of the near part of Daniel's prophecy. But the far part of Daniel's prophecy focuses on a revived Rome, right? There would be the space where Rome fell, right, to the Ottomans, actually, in, what was it, 1453 or something like that? I think... Rome finally was dissolved, eastern uh, uh, eastern uh, half of Rome, western half of Rome had already uh, crumbled, and but yet eastern Rome existed for another thousand years past that, all the way up until, un, until the Ottomans, the Turks, finally defeated um, Rome or took over the, 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 the power control. So the point being for us is that Daniel's intense interest on the fourth beast is actually driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, Who's driving, of course, the dream? Daniel says in verse 19, I desire to know the, the exact meaning of the fourth beast. So it's no wonder that the fourth beast is not named directly in many prophetic charts. Um, like uh Babylon, Medo Persia, and Greece are named by name. And in fact, even those, those first three beasts are even identified directly in the book of Daniel, right? Babylon, Medo Persia, and Greece are all even identified in the book of Daniel, but yet the fourth beast doesn't have a name. And I believe that owes to the fact of this near-far prophecy. Again, preterism is kind of the near aspect where it ta- describes Rome's pow- come to power, uh, rise to power, and dominance uh, over the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the temple of Israel, and and that uh, aspect about um, Rome in the first century. Yet at the same time, the futurist view lends us the the other aspect of the far part of Daniel's prophecy that pertains to the book of Revelation, I believe, and pertains to what will be in still yet future from our day here in 2023. Daniel says, I want to know the exact meaning of this fourth beast. Why is it different from all the others? Why is it dreadful? So he replays some of the wordage, the verbiage from his um vision. And um and he talks about the meaning of the ten horns in verse 20 that were on his head and the other horns which came up. Remember, these ten horns directly plug in to the ten horns in the book of Revelation as well. And so he also zeroes in on these, on this um little horn and the three horns, and the one that had eyes like a mouth, other than great boasts. it was larger in appearance and its associates, verse 20. Daniel says, he gives us some more details. He kept looking and the horn was waging war. It's like he asks for the interpretation and then he turns around and starts looking at the vision again in verse 21. And this horn was prev- waging was war with the saints, literally Hebrew says the holy ones, was waging war with the saints, or the Aramaic, I'm sorry, and prevailing against them. Now, this part of the vision should really concern us, especially if you count yourself among the holy ones. From the 1st century perspective, it was future to Daniel, but from the 1st century perspective, which is now um, past history to us, the Antichrist figure known as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he waged war against the people of Jerusalem in those days, the people of Israel in those days. He waged war with a lot of peoples around him, not just Jerusalem. But he caused a lot of trouble for uh, the Israelites, for the Jews, for the temple, for you know, defiling it, the story of Maccabees all over again. Rome itself persecuted the saints, right, in their days. I mean, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you'll you'll get the idea that Christianity eventually came under the persecution of big, bad Rome, right? Big Brother Rome, um, killing uh, Christians everywhere they went. And so this persecution against the saints is understandable. But notice that Daniel says he was making war with the saints and prevailing against them. If we um consider that parts of this prophecy have not yet been fully fulfilled especially when we get to parts of um yeshua's prophecy in the book of Matthew um Paul's prophecy in his letters to the Thessalonian churches and then Daniel's or uh, John's prophecy in the book of Revelation we're going to find that this antichrist who's going to come on the scene is going to do just like his predecessors his um his type his shadow uh, which was uh, Antio- uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's going to wage war against the saints, and God's going to allow him to prevail against them as well. Now, we're going to read about more of this persecution in j- chapter 9, and chapter 10, and 11, and 12 of Daniel, and we'll get to that probably next week. But uh, germane to our study here is that this persecution takes place until, verse 22 says, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed. So it seems like there's this this succession of events that is immediate immediately connected one another there's the persecution and war against the saints that this little horn is in, engaged in until right until it's interrupted by the ancient of days which is God the father coming and judgment was passed in favor of the saints right the ones who are being persecuted of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom and this is good news this is good news what this tells us is that again in near far fashion Daniel is foreseeing that on the one hand, on the near uh, uh, landscape, the closer mountain peak in our little picture that I'll flash on the screen of uh, prophetic telescoping, the first mountain peak would probably correspond to first century, 70 AD, persecution of uh, of the people of Israel and the uh, uh, Jerusalem being sacked, the temple being destroyed. Uh, moving into Christians being persecuted, right? So we're talking about when we say the saints or the people of God, on the one hand, on the natural level, we're talking about um, Israel. But on the spiritual level, we're talking about Christians. Both peoples are in view in the prophetic um, um uh, visions when we talk about saints being um, persecuted. So just don't, don't think, well, hey, how can the saints be the Jews? They don't believe in Jesus. No, in the Old Testament, the word saints, the holy ones here, uh, is a reference to the those within the righteous uh natural uh line of physical Israel those who have a genuine relationship with God and even those whom the antichrist deems are just um in covenant with God uh, on the whole right doesn't matter whether they're even really particularly righteous but they're they're they have some covenant some amount of covenant loyalty right they keep the covenant remember you have to uh, when you read through the um the story of the Maccabees um Antiochus Epiphanes um, sought to uh, put an end to Torah observance and anyone who would practice it, right? He made it illegal to study and practice Torah. He made circumcision illegal. He didn't care whether you were really a faithful follower of God, he just cared whether or not you were of Jewish persuasion and. And um, practice a semblance of Torah obedience, right? If it looked like Torah obedience to him, then you were under his persecution. You were on his radar, and you were gonna um, get uh, persecuted. So, so, so it should be at the end of days when anti- uh, when the Antichrist hits the scene, and we read in the Book of Revelation that he's gonna make war with um, the um, the the offspring of the woman in chapter twelve of Revelation. He's gonna go off to make war the devil antichrist uh, the devil incarnate antichrist will go off to make war with the offspring of jacob the offspring of israel and those who have the testimony of jesus so this puts jews and christians in the same boat the people of the book i also imagine that the antichrist is going to probably make war with muslims as well because of their fierce monotheistic belief in one god and their devotion to allah and to muhammad and uh, anything that's religious, I believe they will probably fall under a a measured amount of persecution for the Antichrist as well. So, in other words, all of what we might call the monotheistic religions, the Abrahamic faiths, or the people of the book, this would include Jews, Christians, and Muslims, are probably all going to be um, under the persecution of Antichrist. And this is prefigured by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in the um, two centuries before um, uh, the first century. Of course, there weren't any... Muslims around for him to persecute then, and there weren't any Christians per se either. So his attention was just focused on the Jewish people. But notice in verse 21 and going into 22, the persecution is directly interrupted, as it were, in the text by the Ancient of Days setting up the kingdom. This would seem to suggest um, that in the first century, all of this didn't wasn't completely fulfilled, although the kingdom was brought in its spiritual sense in the first century um you know yeshua ushered in the kingdom and inaugurated it and brought it to um a place where it was recognizable within the hearts of men so the the spiritual kingdom was was breaking into the present day of yeshua's first century crowd So much so that he could describe the kingdom of heaven being among them. It's in your midst. And yet at the same time, this near and not yet or now and not yet near and far aspect of prophecy, right? The prophetic telescoping of the two, um, uh, two mountain peaks suggests that there's a part of God's kingdom that's still future. And so the preterists, who are full-blown hyper-preterists, who believe that everything's fulfilled and that the kingdom was already ushered in, ushered in and that the uh, the saints have taken possession of the kingdom, and that Yeshua is here, there's no more second coming, there's no more uh, resurrection or rapture, everything's already took place in the first century. I think they have serious problems with their with their hermeneutic uh, principle of of trying to interpret all of that and smash it into the first century. At least partial preterism gives. Um, some credit credit to the fact that some of this must still be future. And so I'm going to go with a, a more of a futurist perspective and recognize that a lot of this is still future. So going back to this fourth beast, in the middle of the vision where Daniel's contemplating this fourth beast, he sees this interruption of the kingdom and then the interpreter tells him about the kingdom. But then the interpreter tells him, this is what the fourth beast will be, in Verse starting in verse 23. It's a fourth kingdom on the earth. Now, The word fourth there suggests the succession from one, two, three, and then four without any gap. And so, again, I'll keep going back to this near slash far or now slash not yet aspect or prophetic telescoping, where on the one hand, if we look at the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and overlay it and correspond it with the um, four um, beasts of Daniel, then the kingdom's... um, Uh, arrive on the scene on planet Earth and they they, they come and go in successive fashion, one right after the other without any gaps. Babylon moves into Medo-Persia, which moves into Greece, which moves right into Rome. That is the historical succession of the kingdoms. Likewise, Daniel sees four beasts. He doesn't see one, two, three, dot, 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 and then four. He sees one, two, three, four, which suggests that they are all four beasts success one after the other, which really gives a strong indicator that Rome is the fourth beast on the near aspect, on the historical scope, um, near to Daniel from his perspective right within a few hundred years, but past history to us, almost 2,000 years since we've been talking about first century Rome and its power to crush Uh, The Messiah, uh, you know, send him to the cross, crucify him, um, persecute the saints and things like that in the first century. So we're talking about ancient history in that respect, fourth beast. However, please don't lose sight of the fact that the prophecy here in the fourth beast has a profound near far aspect or now not yet aspect. The fourth beast is a type and shadow of both Rome as well as a revived Rome or a Rome, and a a new world order that's still future. So what is in between the historical Rome and the revived Rome, or what is in between um, the near aspect of Rome and the far aspect of Rome? What uh, church historians call the church age, or what we might recognize is this gap, almost 2,000 years long. We know from hindsight that the gap must exist. Even if Daniel didn't see the gap, which he Apparently didn't. At least he doesn't describe it, which is fine because the gap, aka the church age, aka the 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 um, times of the Gentiles in proper, in 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 its fullness, um, all of that was part of the mystery of God that was hidden from the writers of the Old Testament, including Daniel. So it makes sense that Daniel chapter two, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter nine, they don't see the gap. They just see one, two, three, four. When it comes to kingdoms and beasts, etc., etc. They don't see that the fourth is actually a type and shadow of both the fourth and the eighth, right? Remember, John tells us there are seven. When we look at the the beast which has 10 heads and seven horns, which correspond to the seven uh, nations of uh, kingdoms that uh, Satan had utilized to persecute Israel down through the ages, going all the way back to Egypt as number one, Assyria as number two, Babylon as three, Medo-Persia as four, Greece as five, Rome as six, and then the seventh one is unnamed by Daniel because it exists in the Gap. Make sure I understand what I'm saying. And why would there be a gap? Because Israel is out of the land and her temple's destroyed. So it's a time of exile. It's a time of diaspora. It's a time where the, the, the historical scene is primarily given over to the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles, that historical gap that was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. That's why the seventh beast is particularly un, unnamed and even um hardly even uh, given any uh, uh, biblical... Um, attention at all, but he does show up in the book of Revelation, but he does not show up in the book of Daniel. Is the point I'm trying to make. There's no mention. If you do a search for Daniel chapter two, plug in the word seven there, it doesn't show up in Daniel chapter two. There's no mention of the word seven, no seven horns, no seven uh, beasts, no seven eyes, no seven anything. Likewise in Daniel chapter 10, there's no seven anything. There are 10 Right, There are ten toes in Daniel's uh, Nebuchadnezzar statue, and there are ten horns in Daniel's um, fourth beast, but there's no seven mentioned. So the seventh um, uh, beast does show up in uh, Revelation, but very, very, very briefly. And then this final eighth beast is the one that gets most of the attention. And the eighth beast, who is who directly corresponds to the ten um, horns and the ten kings, he is the, the type of of the fourth beast. So, the relationship, I'm trying to say in in closing in my study tonight, there's a direct relationship between the fourth beast and the eighth beast. That's the point I'm trying to make. The eighth beast, the eighth beast of Revelation, which again, Daniel sees the eighth beast as more or less part of the fourth. And so, from Daniel's perspective, there's kind of just one beast called the fourth, but really it's a composite beast that's uh, a type and shadow of both the fourth beast, which is Rome, and then the eighth beast, which is kind of a revived Rome or something to that effect. So in closing, for this particular part of my study, um, let me um, just reference this particular chart and we'll close with this chart. And next week we'll be poised to directly turn to Romans uh, to Daniel chapter 9, start looking at Daniel 70 weeks. And we'll see more of these beasts and, and kingdoms again, but I don't want to belabor this point. In this particular chart, looking at this column on the far left, We've got a heading called kingdom. We've got Babylon, which corresponds, if we move over to the start moving right, Babylon corresponds to the head of gold, which corresponds to, excuse me, it corresponds to the lion with eagle's wings in chapter 7. So um, the kingdom of Babylon is the head of gold in chapter 2, who is also the lion in chapter 7. This is what we're drawing our study to a close, is the conclusion, the summary. In Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of Medo Persia is. The, in the statue is the chest and arms of silver and is also the bear with three ribs in Daniel chapter 7. So Medo-Persia is the silver and is also the bear. Moving down, the third kingdom of Greece in, in the in, uh, in the statue uh, is the belly and thighs of bronze of chapter 2. So the kingdom is Greece, right? uh, uh, uh the belly and thighs of bronze in chapter two and then this corresponds with the leopard with four wings and four heads which makes sense right a leopard moves swiftly uh uh, uh um uh, uh alexander the great conquered the known world very very quickly right and as a young man um and when we talk about um four wings i mean it's like he never even touched the ground right he just swiftly moved back and forth and and just conquered everything and then we talk about four four heads four wings four generals that inherited his kingdom when he died. All right, that all makes sense. And then the fourth kingdom in the chart here is Rome, which corresponds in the statue to the legs of iron of chapter, chapter 2, which corresponds to the unique, dreadful, and terrible beast, or the fourth beast, in Daniel chapter 7. And um, when we keep looking further into this chart, when we're talking about kingdoms, just below Rome, we've got Rome divided and dispersed. As we start looking at the feet and the toes, that's another kingdom, but yet it's part of Rome. It's it's a it's a it's a continuation of Rome. Is it west, East and West Rome? Yes. Is it Istanbul? Who came? Uh, who who picked up where Rome left off? Yes. Uh, things like that, that we could talk about. But notice that in the statutes represented by the feet, partly of iron, and partly of clay. And yet, then in Daniel's beasts, it's represented by the ten horns and a little horn. So, we're going to see how this corresponds to Revelation eventually. Like I said, I kind of give you a sneak peek of it tonight. And then finally, and most importantly, really, if we honestly um, consider it, the most important kingdom in the Daniel 2 vision and the Daniel 7 vision, and the most important kingdom in the book of Revelation as well, is the final millennial kingdom that will come on planet earth. And this kingdom in Daniel's statue, in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, is represented by the stone cut without hands, which strikes the image and fills the entire earth. Yet in Daniel's vision in chapter seven, it's represented by the Ancient of Days giving this kingdom to the Son of Man, along with the um, saints of the Most High who inherit this kingdom that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter seven. And this corresponds directly with the book of John, uh, telling us about the New Jerusalem. I'm sorry, not the New Jerusalem, the um, the Millennial Kingdom, which leads into the New Jerusalem. But first, it's that Millennial reign with Messiah, where the saints inherit the kingdom along with King Messiah. And so, that's going to do it for our look at Daniel's chapter 2 and 7. Next week, as we look at my schedule here, we'll turn to topic 5 and begin to peel back some of the details of Daniel's 70 weeks, or the 70 weeks of Daniel and uh we kind of gave you a little sneak preview of this several weeks back where we looked at um this prophecy in Daniel 9:24 through 27 but we're going to directly turn towards that and get some more details. It's not going to be a deep dive again. I don't mean to disappoint you, but it will talk about details that will give us a better appreciation of the further prophecies that we're going to be reading about for instance Matthew 24, um Mark 13, uh Luke, um uh, sorry, uh, Mark 11, Luke Luke 13, Luke uh 17 luke 21 i believe um first and second thessalonians and of course um uh the book of revelation and things like that so we'll we'll look at that then but that'll do it now for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself lyman I'm a torturer to your congregation. Katie Latunvalda Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedina.com and join us in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and uh, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, Leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on, and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow if you're on my website right now. uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones, and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy, engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not... Um, Take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response, response to biblical Unitarianism. Uh, my name is Arban Lyman Hanavi. And let's take the next 30 minutes and two parts to, um, look at Bible verses that biblicalunitarianism.com believes, uh, speak about the unity of God in a non-Trinitarian fashion. So let me look at their website, um, biblical unitarianism is a website about god and his son jesus christ and here's what they say right at the beginning the following are clear explanations of the verses in the bible that trinitarians have sometimes used in attempts to prove the trinity and to substantiate that jesus is god since there are an overwhelming number of very clear verses about jesus christ's identity and his distinction from god and since god's word has no contradictions these comparatively few verses must fit with the many clear verses, and they do. So their assumption at the very beginning is that there is no Trinity in the Bible, that there's God who's numerically one, he's the only God there is, and he is the only person of God that exists. There are no three persons. Likewise, then, within their perspective of Trinity, of, of God, their perspective of Trinity is that there are three important um, figures in the Bible but it's not a triune God it's God the father who is the only god there is his name is yahweh and this is the unitarian perspective and along with that comes the human agent known as Jesus Christ who was born of the of the woman Mary and brought into the historical um, scene in the first century but he has been exalted at the right hand of the father and now sits there and, reign, and rules and reigns along with God and will one day rule and reign from planet Earth. And yet he's not God. He's not the second person of the Trinity. He's not divine. He's exalted. He's deified, but he's not. he didn't exist from eternity past. And then the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Trinity. Instead, the Holy Spirit is not a person at all. He's either simply another way of describing God in spirit, right? The Spirit of God is God. Or the Holy Spirit is a description of with a small s for spirit, is simply a description of the power and anointing that God um, bestows upon humans in sort of gift-like fashion. God moves among men by His power, by the power of the Spirit. So, it's the description of the power of God and the anointing of God upon a person. That's what we call the Holy Spirit in, in Unitarian circles. Now, I'm a Biblical Trinitarian. I'm not a Biblical Unitarian. I'm not a Biblical Unitarian. I'm I'm not a Unitarian in any any way, shape, or fashion. Um, I'm a Biblical Trinitarian, which means I don't fully agree with their theology, but it's not a hard... it's not the type of disagreement that causes me to disfellowship from them. So, if you are listening to these podcasts or these uh, YouTube videos, you're watching and studying this topic right along with me, and you are of the Unitarian persuasion, I hope you can appreciate the fact that I'm willing to open and have open dialogue with you um, because these topics are um, challenging. And so I'm not saying I have all the answers, but what I am saying is that the Bible gives us enough information so that we can uh, come to a conclusion that God is Trinity. And so I do recognize that uh, many biblical Unitarians are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I'm not trying to disfellowship with them for, for that matter. Also, I am of the persuasion that one does not have to be a Trinitarian in order to be a genuine Christian, contrary to some other Trinitarians that I know. I don't think you have to believe in Trinity to be saved, but the Bible points you in that direction so that once you are genuinely saved, I think you should arrive at that conclusion. And there are some aspects of Trinity that are directly linked to genuine salvation, but I don't think that you have to understand that at the the initial uh, onset of your coming to faith in Jesus as your Messiah. So that being said, let's turn to this uh, discussion. This might be two parts, it might be three parts, it might be one part. Meaning, it might be finished tonight, it might go spill over to next week, it might go over to three weeks. But we're starting on a new verse, and it's the most famous verse of the Trinitarian debates. It's Deuteronomy 6-4, known by Judaism as the Shema which is taken from the Hebrew. We'll look at that in a moment. But Biblical Unitarian has this to say about this verse. So first they quote the verse out of the NIV here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's read their explanation. I'm going to read through it somewhat quickly because I don't need to stop and and explain their explanation. It's kind of self-explanatory. I want to leave all my time for my rebuttal, for my refutation, or my answer to their answer. Right. So I'm going to read through this part rather quickly. So just strap yourself in and don't get lost. This is Biblical Unitarianism. It is believed by some that the Hebrew word one, echad, that is used in Deuteronomy 6.4 and other verses indicates a compound unity that is just not true, Anthony Buzzard writes. So right out of the gate, they're going to attack this idea from a Trinitarian perspective that the word echad actually deals with not just one, but multiple, right? We're going to find out later on that actually I'm in, I am I have a lot of agreement with what biblical Unitarianism is trying to convey here with this word um, echad. Let's keep reading. It is untrue to say that the he. This is Anthony Buzzard's quote within Biblical Unitarians' explanation about Trinity. It's untrue to say that the Hebrew word echad one in Deuteronomy six four points to a compound unity. A recent defense of the Trinity argues that when one modifies a collective noun like cluster or herd, a plurality is implied in echad. In echad, the argument is fallacious. The sense of plurality is derived from the collective noun, not from the word one. Echad uh, in Hebrew is the numeral, is the numeral one. Isaiah 51-2 describes Abraham as one, Echad, where there's no possible misunderstanding about the meaning of this simple word. Right? That's from Buzzard. Alright, biblical Unitarianism continues. Their explanation is very short, so I can get through this in about 5 or 10 minutes. There's no reference to the word one as to the plurality of any kind. It is used of one in number, the first in a series, one in the sense of the same, and one in the sense of each or a certain one. A study of its uses in the Old Testament will reveal its simple meaning and the truth it conveys. They continue. It is translated first in Genesis 1.5, when God made light on the first day. The whole earth spoke one language before uh, Babel in Genesis 1, 11, 1 Hagar cast her child under one of the bushes in Genesis 21.15. In Pharaoh's dream, there were seven ears of grain on one stalk. In Genesis 45:41, five. In the plague in Egypt's livestock, not one cow died in Israel. In Exodus 9:6, Exodus 12:49 says that Israel shall have one law for the citizen and for the foreigner. The examples are far too many to list. Echad is used more than 250 times in the Old Testament, and there is no hint of any Jewish commentary or lexicon, that it somehow implies a compound unity. By the way, in my explanation, we're going to look at some of these Jewish commentaries. We can get to them. They continue. The history of the Jews is well known. They were infamous in the ancient world for for being downright obnoxious when it came to defending their one God, as civilizations down through the ages found out. Snedeker quotes Eliot. And here's another quote from from an author. One thing very important is certain, that if any such hints that God was a plurality of persons were conveyed, the Jews never understood them. The presumption is that they knew their own language, and it is certain they understood that the unity of God was taught by their scriptures in the most absolute and unqualified manner. Such was their interpretation of Moses and the prophets at the time when Christ came. They continue, In all Palestine, there probably could not have been found a single man or woman who supposed that there was any distinction of persons such as now is taught in the unity of god. And then in their second bullet point, or their second point which I think is it, see, it's very short. Um, which is why I'm reading so quickly through there, I'm not stopping and, and elaborating. Number point number 2 in the biblical unitarian defense against trinitarianism, they say Deuteronomy 6:4 is one of the strongest texts against the trinity. Wow, that's kind of a bold statement, right? God is one, not three in one, or some other plurality. <clears throat> this has been the rallying cry of Jews down through the ages who have stood aggressively against any form of polytheism or pantheism. Jesus quoted this verse as part of the first and great commandment. And here we have a quote from Yeshua from the book of Mark. Here, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Taken from Mark 12, 29-30. They remind us, it is quite inconceivable that christ would be promoting some form of the doctrine of the trinity while at the same time quoting deuteronomy that god is one to a jewish audience who would be sure to misunderstand him and in conclusion they say it is much more reasonable to believe that jesus was simply affirming that if we are to love god with all our heart we must be certain who he is the one god of israel end all right so that's the end of biblical unitarianism you see they've got some footnotes there from buzzard uh, Hindman and Snitaker. All right, now let's turn to my own um, answer to their uh, statement that the Shema is talking about one God and not about a composite unity or something like that. All right, a shocker to my um, Christian audience, I'll just kind of tip my hand up right up front, is that I actually agree with much of the basic premise of what biblical Unitarianism is trying to convey. That is that the Deuteronomy Shema passage is conveying the sense that there is one God and that there is only one God that Israel is to worship and recognize. I actually affirm that. And I know most Trinitarians do as well, but they're going to start talking about how that God is, um, that the word echad can also refer to the fact that, you know, that the, the two became one, one man and woman became one. And we're going to look at that passage here in a moment. But I think what many Trinitarians are missing is that the primary, and this is my understanding, I'll just tell you this right up front in case you don't make it through the full 30-minute study, the primary um, thrust of the uh, context of the Deuteronomy passage, as is carried along through other passages of the Bible, of the Torah proper, the five books of Moses, as well as uh, shows up in the Tanakh, uh, the prophets, and the writings, and then... um, carried over into the New Testament, is the idea that there is only one true God that we are to worship and recognize. And so I do believe that the word chad there is trying to primarily convey the sense of one single something. There is one God, and that is axiomatic. It is foundational for us as both Trinitarians and Unitarians that there exists, that there's one God. Now we can begin to have this discussion about what is the complexity of God's nature, and we'll do so now. But first. Let's kind of get the um, what we might call the structural analysis out of the way. Here we have on my screen um, the English of the passage: Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." This is the NASB version of the Bible. Um, over on the right side of the page, we have the Hebrew: "Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad." The word, last word in the um, verse here, I light it here for you, right there. The last word is the word "Echad." All right, so that's where they say, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, i.e. the Lord is echad. What does this word echad mean? Um, Let's look at some different translations and begin to ascertain from an English perspective uh, what the translators think the word one means. NIV, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. NLT, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is the Lord alone. Now that's interesting. They translate the word echad into the word alone. Um, ESV, the Lord our God, the Lord is one I'll just focus on the final clause now from this point out, for brevity's sake Um, uh, Berean Standard, the Lord is one KJV, new KJV NESB, the Lord is one NESB, uh, 1995 and 1997 the Lord is one Legacy Standard, Yahweh is one Amplified, the Lord is one and then brackets, they say the only God Christian Standard, the Lord is one Holman Christian Standard, the Lord is one American Standard Version uh jehovah our god is one jehovah that's interesting translation the aramaic bible in plain english um here israel lord jehovah our god lord jehovah is one uh brenton septuagint translation the lord our god is one lord uh, contemporary english um listen israel the lord our god is the only true god dewey rhames uh the lord is uh uh god is one lord uh, erv god is one lord god's word translation the lord is the only god good news translation the lord alone is our god international standard the lord alone jps which is a jewish translation the lord is one literal stand uh literal standard version Here, o Israel, our god yahweh yahweh brackets is into brackets one in other words yahweh one the word is there supplied by translation majority standard bible uh the lord is one new american standard i'm sorry new american bible the lord alone uh net bible the lord is one new revised standard the lord alone uh new heart english the lord is one uh webster's we're almost done folks webster's bible translation is one lord world english bible yahweh is one and then young's literal translation our god is one jehovah all right so you can see from all these different translations the translators are working from the same Hebrew, and we're going to look at the Greek here in a second as well. They're working from the same pool of words. There's no variant in translation in uh, manuscripts, as it were, that would lend to support that one is anything other than, say, one or only, or uh, the single God or something to that effect. Um, when we turn to uh, Hebrew and compare it with Greek... We have a, a web page pulled up that shows me both of these. We have the English uh, translation and English translation. This web author's version. Here, Israel Yahweh, our Elohim is one Yahweh. You guys already know that the word um, Elohim is a plural word, but uh, in here it's a it's a plural uh, coupled with uh, possessive. Here, O the Lord, our God, our Elohim, Eloheinu, The U is. Uh, in su- suggests uh, plural we'll look at the, the relevance of this word ooh a little later on in the study if we can get to it tonight great if not we'll hit we'll get it next week look at the uh, septuagint rendering um there are two versions of the septuagint i could work from there's the alexandrinus over on the left here which is what you're seeing on my screen and then there's a the vaticanus on the right the alexandrinus has a lot more wording to verse four because it captures part of verse three but the, um, the, the wording of verse 4 picks up right here, uh, picks up around here. So I'll just use the Vaticanus version this time, since it just uh, captures what we're already used to hearing. So we have, um, Here was the Lord our God, the Lord is one in the English, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohein, Adonai Echad in the Hebrew. And now we have, Akui Yisrael, Kurios Hafeas Hemon, Kurios Ace Esten. This is the Greek rendering. And the verb that, or um, the, the 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 one, you know, is one um, word is the word um, ace. Or some people translate it or pronounce it as ice, E-I-S. Uh, if we were to click on that word, um, we would end up words that talk about one or singularity and things like that. But I don't need to go too deep into all that. I'm just making aware of the fact that this is just the standard word for one. So this is part of the structural analysis. Okay, um, so so far all we've really determined is that the word one means one, and it primarily means singular. It means one. It doesn't necessarily mean exclusively one, but it means singularly one, meaning there's one thing that's being represented by this word echad. However, at this point in time, since we're going to make a defense for Trinity, it becomes necessary to pro- to make a case for why God would take his plurality, his his complexity, and veil it in the Old Testament and yet reveal it in the New Testament. In other words, the biblical Unitarian is making a case that God is one. He's a singular person. There's no other persons, no three persons. just one person, God the Father. And the New Testament is simply an echo of what the Old Testament already established. That's their perspective, more or less. Remember, we could um, basically take Deuteronomy 6.4 and hyper-literally translate it from the biblical Unitarian perspective as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one person. That's essentially the theology of the biblical Unitarian perspective. The Lord our God, the Lord is one person. Remember, they don't have a problem with the Trinitarian theology that there's one God. At least I don't perceive they have a problem. Their issue, they, the biblical Unitarians or the non-Trinitarians, their issue is with the three persons of God as represented by the one being of God. Remember, like Dr. James White is fond of saying, a, a popular Trinitarian, God is one what and three who's. right? He's one being, yet he's three persons. And that is the essence and core of Trinitarian theology. One God Three persons and all three persons are God. So that's the, the mystery and the complexity of the God that we serve. But biblical Unitarianism or non-Trinitarian theology wants to say, no, there are no three persons. And so when you read Deuteronomy 6:4, what Moses is really saying is, here is where the Lord is our God, the Lord is one person. That's what they're reading into the text. However, I disagree with that insert with that eisegesis, with that reading into the text. So it becomes apparent to me that from the biblical Unitarian perspective and... Um Uh, non-Trinitarian perspective in general, they have a problem with the um, Incarnation. They have a problem with understanding mystery. So let me briefly take about three to five minutes to just read mystery. What does the term mystery mean in reference to the Bible? Apparently, they don't really get this. And if they do get it, they're not explaining that they get it. And so I'm going to kind of take a shot at their theology and say that they don't understand it, or at least they don't articulate it the way that Trinitarians understand it. So this is kind of biblical basics. One of the terms that the Bible that Bible believers have used in describing some biblical doctrines is the word mystery. This is a Trinitarian um, resource that I'm reading, by the way, from uh, blueletterbible.org. Blue I'm sorry. It's important to have a correct understanding of what mystery means since it's used in three different senses by Christians. They are as follows. So the first reference, the biblical use of mystery is something revealed that was previously hidden. Okay? I'm going to scroll down through these quickly the second aspect of mystery is a mystery it can be something about god that humans cannot completely comprehend this is a term of mystery that the historic church uh has added that the bible doesn't directly say pers- that the, the the bible doesn't directly um um define but it's an inference from scripture that christianity has picked up from the biblical reference really the point number one about mystery is something that was hidden historically from humans but god knew about it to be revealed later that's the primary use of the word musterion in the greek the word mystery Um, and then the third one uh, that this web resource reminds us of is that mystery may be something may refer to something about god that cannot logically be understood Meaning, and they say in this term, and I'll go ahead and read their answers since it's relevant to the Trinity. There's another sense in which the word mystery has been used by the Church. It's in reference to truths that the Bible reveals about God, but humans cannot logically comprehend. So This is where we start to pick on the uh, non-Trinitarian um, uh, theology. An example of this type of mystery, uh, where it's a, where it's hard for logic to put together, would be the Trinity. God is both three and one at the same time, while the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, is beyond our understanding this type of mystery would come under the category of a paradox two truths that are seemingly contradictory but in reality are not and i've got this slide that i wanted to um uh show you uh i'll show it to you in post-production i forgot to load it here on my screen here if we if we if we don't get through all of this tonight i'll show it to you next week but it's this it's this kind of short little slide where it talks about how that God is one, yet God is three, but the way in which God is one is not the same way in which God is three, and so there's no contradiction, no confusion, no um, illogicality, so we don't have to worry about um, contradictions in logic, because the way in which God is one is not the same way in which God is three. Remember one what and three who's. God is one God, one being, his nature is one, his essence is one, his divine nature is one, and yet Three persons share that same essence or divine nature. Three persons, yet one being. One what, three who's, uh, etc. Et so the same. The way in which God is one is not the way in which God is three. So we don't see a contradiction. So um, this type of mystery, this, this resource is, is something that we cannot logically understand. Thus, we accept it by faith because of the nature of God. I'm reminding myself that Dr. Dale Tuggy, who we looked at in my three-year-long study on the Trinity... You can get from my website. at uh, exam- uh, We'll look at this actually tonight. Um, Dr. Tuggy is fond of saying that Trinity just doesn't make sense lo- logically. It's illogical. So um, when we're talking about biblical mystery, I think that non-Trinitarians have a difficult time grasping the idea of mystery. So let me scroll down to the summary and explain all the th- threes and then just move on to the next tab that I have in my resources here. Summary. What does the term mystery mean in reference to biblical doctrine? The term mystery is used in three different ways by Christians in reference to biblical doctrine. They are as follows. The biblical use of the word mystery refers to some truth that had been hidden in the past but was eventually revealed by God in the sense it is a sacred secret. And this is the primary aspect that I believe that biblical Unitarians don't give full credit to. They try to tell us that what the Old Testament, i.e. the Tanakh, tells us about God is really all that there is for us to either contend with or grasp or conclude. And yet they don't seem to give credit that the New Testament, i.e. the time period that existed historically between the pages of your Bible and the margin between your Old Testament and New Testament, that's when Trinity was revealed. It was revealed in real time to the first century recipients who walked and talked with Yeshua and those like Paul who went on to write about Yeshua and explain this gospel message to the Gentiles who would come up after the first century, uh, the first uh, wave of the 12 apostles. So Trinity was revealed to them in real time, and then they went and wrote down all that the Holy Spirit told them to record. And so Trinity unfolds before us in the pages of the Upsetalk Scriptures in a way that tells us and reminds us and explains to us that there is one God in the old Testament. And yet he is a complex God. He's complex in his nature and his nature includes three persons or what we would, we, we use the word persons. Even the word, the word person isn't found in the Bible just like the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. I'm fine with that. Um, But nevertheless, it's in harmony with what Trinity conveys, the the message. And yet all of this is secretive in God's perspective. God knew it from eternity past, and yet man didn't know it. Why? Because God chose to veil in secret. And we'll see this when we turn to 1 Timothy 3.16, near the end of our study, 3.15 or 3.16, one of those two verses. Nevertheless, they say um, it's mystery. And I think that non-Trinitarian groups don't give enough credit for the fact that the reason we don't see it in the Old Testament is because God veiled it in mystery. So we, on one hand, we could we could point our bony finger at God and say, God, it's your fault if we don't understand Trinity. It's your fault." And God would say, "Well, yes and no. It is my fault that you don't fully understand Trinity in the Old Testament because I veiled it from your understanding in the pages of the talk." On the other hand, God would say, "That's why I brought the New Testament along and my Son Yeshua and the Holy Spirit to explain my nature a lot more in, in a lot more detail." The If you finish, finish the book, right, and don't stop at the first two thirds of the book, but if you keep reading my love letter to you, God says, the New Testament, then you will understand the fullness of my nature that I am one God and yet I am three persons, and it boggles your mind. It seems illogical to you. I know it. 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 It's paradox to you, but it, it makes sense to me. God says. So, um, my challenge to to Biblical Unitarians, again, if you're going to turn to the New Testament to say that you are Christians, I hope you are, right? Hello, Biblical Unitarians, talking to you, listen up. You who call yourselves Christians, I believe you do, and I believe that most of my Biblical Unitarian brothers and sisters are genuine Christians, and yet I challenge you, where exactly is Jesus in the Old Testament by name, and unmistakably Messiah? You're going to turn to passage after passage and prophecy after prophecy, but you're not going to find a direct word that or verse that explicitly, unambiguously, without question, tells you that it must be Jesus, right? I know by faith we recognize that it's Jesus, but if it were as simple as that, then wouldn't all of national Israel and rabbinic Judaism accept Jesus as Messiah? Yeah, I think they would. But what we have to realize is the fact that the mystery of salvation and the mystery of the incarnation is also just that. It's part of mystery. Part of that which, which um, Paul talks about was hidden in the Old Testament. And that's why um, we catch glimpses of it. we kept got types and shadows of it, but we don't fully comprehend it and grasp it until we get to the pages of the Apostolic Scriptures where it fills in the details that were only hinted at and pointing towards in the time period of the Snock. So biblical Unitarianism, you guys are Christians, right? You believe in Jesus as your Messiah, right? What part of your Bible do you use to establish that Jesus is the one and true and only Messiah? I hope you say the New Testament, because if you say the Old Testament, then you're leaving a big part of an important part of your Bible out, right? So with that same logic, can't you apply that to the Trinity? Why do you get stuck in the Old Testament when it comes to Trinity, but you embrace the New Testament when it comes to uh, Jesus as the Christ. Okay, so that's my challenge there. All right, so um, uh, that's mystery. Now, let's look at that passage in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 16 real quick. Trinity is mystery. How do I know this? Paul writing to Timothy says, By common confession, great is the mystery. The Greek word is musterion. Great, by confession, is the mystery of godliness. And then, Paul goes on to elaborate on this godliness, which which I agree is right living. Godliness is that which is an ingredient of our lives. Uh, it's, It's sanctification, godliness, godly living. But what is this mystery of godliness? Our identifying with God so that we can not just know God in our heart and in our head, but go on to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. What is this mystery of godliness? Not what is godliness, but what, from Paul's perspective, is the mystery. Paul goes on to elaborate. He who was revealed in the flesh. He? Who's the he? Is it Jesus? Is it God? The answer is yes. And the proof is that many translations of this passage... Let me just... um, I didn't have this in my notes, but give me a second. I'll just show you what I mean, who the he is. According to some translations, like NIV... He appeared in the flesh, and it doesn't tell you whether it's God or Jesus who appeared in the flesh. But look at some of the other translations, the New Living Translations. Christ was revealed in a human body. ESV, he was manifested in the flesh. Kind of ambiguous, but you have to guess from context. Berean Standard, he appeared in the flesh. Berean Literal, who was um, the mystery of God is who was revealed in the flesh and justified in the Spirit. But look at KJV, God was manifested in the flesh justified in the Spirit. New King King James, same thing. God was manifest in the flesh. NASB is He. NASB 95 and 97, He again. So we see that some of the versions say that um, it's God. And let me just double check real quick the Greek. Um, You scroll down and check the comparative Greek translations. Uh, Where are my comparative... Give me a moment here. Didn't have this cross-reference, but I should have. Uh, go backwards to... You know what? I'll look this up later. But there might be a variant in the Greek where um, one version says God and one version says... it doesn't have the word God. I'll look that up a little bit later. Um, but for now, let's ju- just be aware that some translations put He was uh, manifested in flesh and other translations say God was manifested in the flesh. And um, uh, I can't remember what which Bible tool I need to look up to show... Uh, which which one is which so I apologize for my limitation there this one right right here um, it doesn't say God was manifested in the flesh it just says he who was revealed in the flesh right Um, it doesn't actually have the word uh, God or anything like that confessedly just like you know revealed in the flesh the revealed in the flesh something like that all right but um the point is in the context Whether it's God or Jesus, it actually doesn't matter because if it's God who's revealed in the flesh, then it's the incarnation. If it's Jesus who's revealed in the flesh, then it speaks more than just his humanity. What does it mean that Jesus was revealed in the flesh? I mean, if we're just going to say that Jesus is a human being, like biblical Unitarianism wants us to believe, and I see we're going a little bit over into my 30 minutes, so bear with me. I'll go for another... I think I'll go for another... um, Ten minutes or so, and then we'll make this into a part two for next week. Um, but biblical Unitarianism wants us to believe that Jesus is merely a human being; that he's only a human agent; that he was born in the first century, and he was uh, exalted to the right hand of God. So he now has a glorified body, and he has more than human attributes or qualities. But prior to that, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't exist prior to his being brought into the world uh, through the birth of Mary. And yet, Paul says, he who was revealed in the flesh. Well, if it's talking about humanity, and it uses the phrase being revealed in the flesh, what's the big deal? I mean, all humans are revealed in the flesh in that sense, right? Last time I checked, I was brought into the world the same way that Yeshua was brought into the world, except Yeshua's was a virgin birth. But other than that, I came through the same um, channel, right? You know, I brought into the world by a mom. So was Yeshua. Yeshua had a mom. I had a mom. His was a miraculous birth. Yes, there was no there was no daddy in the picture uh, physically, whereas with mine there was obviously. But is that what Paul means by "revealed the flesh"? Maybe it's maybe it's the um um the virgin birth. Maybe it's the incarnation. I think it has to do with more along the lines of God being revealed in flesh, like the KJV has it. Uh, but notice what Paul says. He 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 kind of um elaborates on this idea of the mystery of godliness. Uh, this person who was revealed in the flesh, obviously Yeshua, who was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so um, we could talk about uh, what is this mystery of godliness. GodQuestions.org um, has a uh, an article on this. I'll read part of this, and then um, uh, I'll, I'll probably call it quits for tonight, and we'll pick this up next week. God questions speaking about this mystery of godliness, has this to say. The phrase, let me go like this. I haven't done this in a while. Um, They have this to say, the phrase, the mystery of godliness, which is found in um, 1 Timothy 3.16, is part of an introduction to an ancient hymn. In the English Standard Version, the verse reads this way, and then they have the same quote, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Roll up a little bit there. It was manifested in the flesh, they continue, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Other translations speak of the mystery from which true godliness springs, like the NIV, and, quote, the great mystery of our faith, like the NLT. The words that follow... In First Timothy three sixteen, explain the mystery of godliness, which is God became flesh and lived among us. Okay, and next week I'll pull out all of the um, structural analysis uh, Greek of the different translations. I didn't have it bookmarked right now, so it will eat up into my discussion time if I stopped and did it right now. We'll look and see are there translations that say God was vindicated in the flesh versus translations that say. It's merely the, the pronoun, him. We'll look at those next week. But for now, um, in closing, uh, Got Questions talks about Musterion, which we already talked about earlier, the mystery. When she was in the New Testament, it refers to uh, things that God, uh, that was, were once hidden by God but were later revealed through Christ in the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's something that can only be known through the revelation of God, which really begs the, the issue. If biblical Unitarianism and non-Trinitarian groups want to deny that, that Yeshua is very God, and they want, to re- they want to reject this idea of mystery, it makes me wonder, are they really seeing through the lens of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit should be revealing that to them. The Holy Spirit should be making that known. Indeed, without the help of the Holy Spirit, the biblical mystery is locked up, which is, makes sense, right? If we go back to the example of um, National Israel and Rabbinic Judaism today, for the most part, National Israel and Rabbinic Judaism is characterized by their blindness to Jesus as the Messiah. And why? Because they have no Holy Spirit in their theology. For the most part, rabbinic Judaism and national Israel, for the most part, I'm not saying all of them, but for the most part, they are characteristically um, identified by their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, their rejection of the New Testament as a whole, because there is no Holy Spirit truth in their theology. They have the Old Testament Tanakh, and to the extent that truth exists in the written Word of God, they have that. But even that truth is locked up to them. They only have a superficial understanding, what I call. Um, an intellectual nutrition level of nutrition when it comes to um, the, the Bible that they read. They don't truly understand the words that they're reading because they are only unlocked by the Spirit. The veil lies over their eyes as we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So God questions in my conclusion for this part um, of our study. We'll pick this up again next week with studying the Shema. And is God one? Is He three? Is He more than one? What's going on? A mystery is that which can only be known through the revelation of God. It's something that was hidden in the past. Paul used the, the word mystery to refer to another number of things. The Greek word translated godliness in most English translations means a proper response to the things of God, which produces obedient and righteous living. Right? This is God question's explanation. Speaking about Yeshua, they say he walked this earth jesus was the embodiment as he walked this earth jesus was the embodiment of pure godliness which led him to lay down his life for unworthy sinners so i mean he's our model which i'm sure god questions would agree with but they go on to um uh, god questions goes on to say that yeshua's life was dedicated to the glory of the father and he always did what pleases the father right both of those references were in john Christians pursue godliness when we follow, they say, the example of Jesus in uh, dedicating every decision to the glory of God, a reference to 1 Corinthians. Godliness is not a suggestion, the site says, it is a command, right? 1 Peter as well as the book of Hebrews. So, in closing, what they're trying to convey is that this mystery of godliness is at the heart of the Christian faith, not just because of its implications about the Trinity, but because godliness and how it's to be reflected in us, not just in our theology, right? I don't want this to be a theology battle, but godliness is about um, our lifestyle. It's it's not just a system of rules and actions that must be performed to appease a deity, they say. At the heart of Christianity is the mystery of godliness, the fact that God took on human flesh— to live among the people he created, right? Philippians passage, which we will get to in time. As a son, Jesus remained completely obedient to his father and then offered himself as a perfect sacrifice in our place. God then raised him from the dead, thereby conquering death for all who trust in him. And because Jesus took our place in substitutionary fashion, sinful humans may be declared righteous before God and be born again, right? So I agree... In closing, with biblical Trinitarians, biblical Unitarians, that I, I hope they are affirming this fact that Jesus is the model for right living. He is the only one who can bring us into full godliness. He is the one by the power of His Spirit can lead us into right living, so that we can be pleasing to God. And yet, um, the mystery of godliness and its comprehend and its um, relationship to Trinity is comprehended only through the revelation of God in Christ. Okay, so ready. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. The idea that you cannot just lay claim to belief in God as the single um, rev- referent in your life. If you're going to um, claim a belief in God, you must contend with Yeshua at some point in fashion, at at some point in time. If you are to be counted as a godly person, this is why the godliness of rabbinic Judaism and national Israel is so deficient. It's because they've rejected the goal of God's godliness, which is Messiah. The goal of God's um, uh, image in us as humans is His Son Messiah, that was brought into the world to to um, reveal God among us. Right? Remember the one of the names that was prophesied of Yeshua is that He would be Immanuel, God with us. And yet, Rabbinic Judaism, for all of its cleverness, has rejected that image of God in the person of the Son Messiah Yeshua, and in so doing. Their godliness, their form of godliness, is deficient. It has some semblance of godliness in all of its commandment-keeping and, and holiness and, and purities and things like that. But at the end of the day, it proves to be lacking. And thus, my challenge to my biblical Unitarian brothers and sisters is this, and I'll close with this for tonight. Don't reject God's revelation of himself in the pages of the Apostolic Scriptures. Yes, we can anchor the foundation in the Old Testament, and let's knock that God is one. There is one God. Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one God. Not hero Israel, Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person. Rather, hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one God. In this sense, the God is the single God, the only God there is, the self-existent God, the unique God that exists among us because he is the only one there is. There are no other gods that we are to recognize or worship or owe our allegiance to. And number two, biblical Unitarianism, listen up. If you claim to be Christian, which I believe you do, then you must recognize that the perfect image of God is displayed in the man Yeshua. And it's perfectly displayed there because he is fully God in his nature as well. And that's the part where if you're just going to get stuck in the Old Testament, well, then you may as well just side with rabbinic Judaism and reject that godliness can be found in the person of Yeshua Yeshua. And as, as representative by the Trinity as well. So we'll pick this up next week, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for um, the interest that is generated by these particular studies. I don't have all the answers, Lord. I know that. I confess that. I confess my limitation. But I know you have the answers and you're revealing them to us. Thank you, Lord, for your complete word. I know that many of your truths were locked away from our understanding. Uh, in the pages of the Word before the coming of Yeshua, and yet that doesn't mean that they were absent. When we talk about mystery, Lord, we're only talking about things that were veiled, but not completely absent. Mystery means that it was there from your perspective, and you gave hints of it. You gave um, clues. You left us with shadows that pointed the way towards the reality. So thus, in the terms of, for instance, Messiah as our Lord and Savior, We can find out who Yeshua is through the pages of the Tanakh, but the fullest revelation is in the Apostolic Scriptures, the continuing um, word that um, filled out the rest of the book, right? The final um, third of the book or the final uh, fourth of the book, however you want to describe the Bible. And yet when it comes to Trinity, again, we catch glimpses of Trinity with places like let us make man in our image, Um, let us go down and confound their language. Um, The man has become like one of us places where we're going to find out later on where people also talk about God in using plural um, uh, pronouns and things like that, places where the angel of the Lord is the Lord, yet is the angel, Um, the places where God showed up as a man in Genesis 18. These um, particular passages, Lord, give us a glimpse into what would be fully revealed in the pages of the Apostolic Scriptures. So thank you, Lord, for your revelation. Thank you for the eschatology study and uh, what it represents Uh, And challenges for us today. Continue to grow us up and uh, cause us to be people of godliness, people of holiness. We want to be pleasing to you, and we realize that in order to do so, Lord, we need to um, take on the whole counsel of your word to be equipped as people of God. So continue to grow us up and help us to realize that none of us has all the answers. Um, Trinitarians don't have all the answers, Unitarians don't have all the answers. We need one another to wrestle through these these difficult uh, issues and pray for one another and to build one another up in the Lord and so that we can be a stronger people in God. And so go with us tonight. uh, Be with us uh, throughout the week. Keep us safe and bring us back together next week as we have a view towards Passover, which is right on the horizon, right? Right? April's coming and Passover's coming. Uh, Let's get our hearts and minds prepared to meet our Lamb, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Shem Yeshua. Amen.